it's very nice to see you on this rainy evening. Um, I hope that in other parts of the world is sunnier. I'm sure it is. Um, welcome to our online audiences. Oops, I thought I'd put this off. I did the opposite. Um, uh, um, to which I'm come to at, towards the end of this conversation for all of you to contribute to the discussion. Um, this is a public event. It's going to be it's being streamed uh, live, and a video of this conversation will be uh, posted on the ODI website uh, very soon. So I am especially delighted to host Rafaela here at ODI tonight uh, for a number of reasons. Um, but um, let me just say a couple of things about me, and which also explains why I'm particularly excited about tonight. My name is Marta. I've been working at ODI for a number of years, um, and I had different roles. Uh, I'm currently, as some of you know, focused on trying to work at the interface of policymaking and the creative industries. But everything I've done in the last few years has been inspired and really influenced by everything I've done in the world of migration. So I worked on migration for you know, a few years, particularly from around 2014-15, when things in Europe took a really bad turn. And I say this because this is a little bit the starting point of the story that we're going to see tonight. And in that role, um, I was personally very involved in ODI as an institution involved in the process leading up to the Global Compact for Migration that you're going to hear uh, a lot of interesting insights about tonight. And so I was one of the non-state actors, civil society that played a role in this UN process. And so I realized that actually, for once, I am, we are, the think tank is the object of the research and the study. So we're talking about us rather than us talking about what happens out there. So it's a, it's a very special occasion. I also thought that after the experience of being involved in the process leading out to the GCM, it's probably going to be the first and the last of the UN processes that I'm going to spend um, so much time being involved. With. So it's very nice to take time five years on with Rafaela to um, think about um, what the process was like, why it mattered, whether it still matters today, and the role the non-state actors played in the lead up to it. Um, it's also very special because the very first conversation I ever had with Rafaela, inevitably online, was about the book. So I was one of the respondents, the, per the people that Rafaela interviewed, and she'll tell you more, uh, to um, uh, to uh, uh, to investigate and analyze um, the role of non-state actors in the global compact for migration, and then also had a little role to play in the title that came to the book. This is the book. It's called Beyond States: The Global Compact for Migration and the Role of Non-State Actors and Cities, and is the book that emerges from Rafaela's PhD um, dissertation. But since then, Rafaela and I worked a lot together on migration-related issues um, on cities. And so it's very nice to have you here um, to tell us more about the book. But why don't you begin by telling us more about yourself, um, what you do, and how this book came about, and what perhaps you're going to do next. Well, first, um, Mata, thanks so much for, for the invitation to speak about um, the book. But I think it's, a, it's, it's much broader in the space that we are moving of how we are working with policymakers in global processes on migration. So um, I've, I'm in my full-time job. I'm the director of the migration program at the Robert Bosch Foundation, which is, which is a German-based um, foundation where we work a lot on the global governance um, actors who are participating in that from cities to um, refugee and migrant organizations working with the UN, Migra UN Migration Network. 
But actually this um, academic part of my work, I started um, before that program came into, into being. So it was kind of a, a parallel process. And I was very keen when I started the research to keep it separate. But inevitably in such a small space, um, people connect and interconnect um, and you meet again. Um, but I was very keen on doing academic research separate and with a different hat um, uh, than I was doing the work as a foundation where I'm also moving in that space as an as an actor and and then it's it's interfering and especially when research is out when you when you start learning from it when you start talking about it um, but I'm really here to say it's like it's the two hats that I'm that I'm trying to to carry with me when when talking about um, this um, this work and how it came about, Marta, right, just briefly, I had a lot of conversations with people who were engaged in the process, which was very intense. Um, it was a very fast pace. Um, and I asked them, like, did you assess your success? How did you influence? Did you, did you trace it? And everyone was like, no, we are so exhausted. We don't really know. We have a feeling. And I knew about methods that are used for 20 years in, in climate negotiations where you really assess um, how, how actors other than states would influence the process, would inform uh, text um, negotiations, but also the informal pieces that are part of it. So it was out there. And then we had a first landmark agreement on, on migration. So it was actually quite natural to think about how can you transfer that and build kind of a baseline that can be now critically discussed, people can hopefully build on, um, can also say that, I, I don't think that's that's right, um, we will see, um, uh, for for such a thing that, that happened for the first time on the issue. So let's take a step back before we delve into the, uh, the findings of Rafaela's research, um, because I realize that not everybody in the world breeds and eats and drinks migration. <laughs> <laughs> the, way, the, minute, the minute they wake up in the morning so they go back to bed at night. Uh, the Global Combat for Migration is a global framework agreed by UN member states in 2018 at a summit in Marrakesh where about, I think, 163, if I remember well. Then a few you know, signed up since and a few more <laughs> dropped. I don't know what the balance is. But the reason why, you know, is referred to as a landmark agreement because on something as controversial of migration, the idea that we could have a global compact with some level of political agreement between member states uh, was not, um, uh, you know, was not um, um, an easy feat. It's not something that, you know, would have been actually possible. Uh, let's just say that, the then Prime Minister of Belgium, of Belgium Charles Michel, who is now the President of the European Council, um, uh, had a, a cry, a provoked a crisis of government, so he had to resign, and his government fell because he went to Marrakesh to sign this contract in, you know, in in an act of opposition with his own uh, parliamentarians who were not supporting it. So this is how bad it was by the end of it. Um, but to give you a bit more of a flavour about the importance of this agreement, and also to introduce why. Uh, non-state actors and a range of actors played a critical role. I cannot think of anybody better than Ambassador David Donoghue, who is very generously joining us from La Guardia Airport, I think. is a distinguished visiting fellow here at ODI. Uh, but importantly, David, who is now civil society and is um, sharing his thoughts as such, um, was um, very uh, and um, very successful Irish diplomat. He was involved in for many years in the negotiations around the Northern Ireland 
this process um, and to try the agreement on behalf of the Irish government. He's then served as Irish ambassadors in countries like Russia, Germany, and Austria. Imagine what that um, will be uh, today. But then um, he then moved on to be the director general of the Irish Development Agency. Um, and so he's worked on international development, in fact, really shaped you know, how Ireland became an actor in that space under his leadership. And then moved to New York to be the um, the uh, uh, to be the permanent representative of Ireland to the, United, to the United Nations. And in that role, he effectively led the negotiation pretty much single-handedly for the SDGs for the Agenda 2030. Um, and then also uh, negotiated the New York Declaration, which was the basis from which the Global Compact for Migration and Refugees took place. So he's a diplomat with you know with <coughs> an insider who since then has taken a very active role since resigning as, you know, an, as a state actor in this process. So, David, help us briefly while you can before you move on to the conference or to give us <laughs> political process and the role that different actors play. Thank you. Well, thank, <clears throat> thank you, Marta. Can you hear me okay? We can hear a bit. The image is frozen right now, but we can hear your voice, so that's what really matters. Okay, great. Well, it was under your wise guidance, Marta, that I actually made the transition from lifelong diplomat to a uh, fully signed up member of civil society. So I owe you a lot. And indeed, we, we uh, had a lot of common involvement in the, uh, in the GCM process. First of all, um, just a word about Raffaella's book. I, I think it's wonderful. I think she has managed to capture how civil society and non-state actors more generally have built up their involvement in uh, UN negotiations of these ones that we're particularly interested in. It's by no means obvious that uh, there would be such uh, an involvement. Um, it varies, frankly, from one negotiation to another. Why is that? Because uh, a, a large proportion of UN membership is uneasy about civil society involvement and tries to restrict them to one degree or another. In the case of the uh, SDGs, we uh, had a, a more uh, liberal atmosphere, and that was partly because many countries felt that uh, the agenda was so wide that you could not deny civil society the chance to comment. But unfortunately, when it came to the New York Declaration, which was uh, in 2016, a more restrictive atmosphere took over. What that meant was that uh, that member states would not engage in direct dialogue with civil society to any significant extent. That was disappointing, but this is my main point, that civil society managed in more informal ways to have a real impact on the negotiations, and that involved either having direct contact with the co-facilitators or, or and or providing written submissions, uh, group statements, and a good example of how civil society has an impact is that Marta herself, as a prominent member uh, at that time, succeeded in getting uh, important language about, uh, about uh, mobility and, and labor skills into the text of the, of the GCM, which was a great tribute both to her advocacy skills, but also to her expertise. It's always better if you have an advocate who is also an expert. But so really, Raffaella's book shows in very, in very comprehensive and quite fascinating detail how progressively uh, non-state actors have 
moved into that space. I, I hope it is a baseline, as Rafaela said. I hope that we can regard this as, as a, a, a platform and, and just build from here. We've had some experience so far of the role that was promised civil society in the GCM, namely uh, they are actually involved in G GFMD, they're also involved in the UN Migration Network, they're involved in the regional consultations about the compact, and they've also been involved in the IMRF itself. So all of that flows from the various ways in which they were able to influence the outcome of the GCM. I'd let it go with that, Martha, ju ju just for now, but we need to say I welcome uh, Raffaella's book and uh, indeed the, this event. I think it's, it, it's very timely and valuable to show what non-state actors are capable of achieving in, in a very difficult negotiation like the GCM. Thank you, David. And you can hear in the background the things are getting busy around you. Uh, stay with us uh, I will. I will. Can, uh, for a bit longer, but of course we understand if you need to uh, move on. Uh, um, uh, and uh, I hope you travel safely to New York and good luck with uh, your uh, conference. Um, Thanks, Martin. The UN system is always very lucky to have your wisdom that you continue to share with all of us uh, about your experience. Um, okay, so we now know a little bit about the Global Compact, and let's now delve in into your book and your findings and the and civil society and non-state actors' engagement in the process, but perhaps help us to understand what the process looked like, what it entailed, and give us a flavor. We keep referring to how controversial it was and what happened perhaps along the way that made this process pretty unique and in some ways controversial. So, well, as, as David said, um, there was, um, if you look at the pure negotiations, that only took five, seven months. It was a very, very brief state-led negotiation process um, that led to the, to the final agreement. But if you take the bigger picture, there's almost, I would argue, 15 to 20 years that you need to take into account of getting us there from the establishment of a global forum on migration and development that has been operating outside the UN system, bringing in a lot of governments, um, step by step, bringing in civil society, then the private sector, um, all of that coming to a moment when 2015 happened, um, European states being very affected, affected having a crisis mode, um, not an actual crisis, but crisis mode um, because of because of arrivals, um, with an opportunity of bringing migration into the UN system and really working hard to convince people in the UN system to make that an agenda item, leading to the New York Declaration that David was co-facilitating. Um, I would say luckily because David was someone who was um, very much engaging with civil society and, as you said, through the SDG process. So it was very much driven by certain individuals um, during that time who had knowledge and expertise. And then the out of the New York Declaration came two compacts. And I'm not talking, we have um, 40 minutes left for the event, not talking refugee regime and, and, and all of that that has been in existence, um, but broadly migration. So the migration compact, which is really the, I would say, the political negotiations, the political strand of the first time UN member states, the international system coming together to talk migration at the UN and not outside the UN, um, in three phases, and it's very—it it sounds very technical, but it's important, and it's—it's it's one of. It sounds basic, but how you set up a process is so crucial for the outcome. So, for the first consultation phase, that was very broad, that was very inviting to people, 
um, where, and David said that no, not many member states actually attended and listened when so many of the very fascinating actors came in and brought in ideas. And then it was a second phase, very brief stock taking, seeing where we are at, bringing states and non-state actors together for the first time cities coming in, and then the very brief negotiations um, with a large break then until the compact actually was adopted. Um, and and um, maybe just, just briefly in terms of the um, what it has changed and on on the on the international level before I come to the controversies because they, they surely were there. I think um, first it was a political negotiation, but it brought really a new common language that we have when we talk about migration globally that a lot of actors actually use without saying it's the it's it's the global compact um, because it had political tensions. Um, but a lot of governments say it's it's helpful. Um, we have infrastructure, we have the, U, the IOM joining the UN system that happened during that time. You established a UN migration network that is coordinating and someone from networks like that was the hardest job I had ever, ever had to do because it's states, international organizations, civil society, municipalities, um, all the stakeholders on various themes, bringing them together in the system, which is, which is a very hard, hard task. And you have funding, you have a migration multi-partner trust fund. It doesn't get to the financing piece that was expected, but there, is an, there, there are mechanisms. And um, it was a moment where a lot of new actors came into that system and engaged and made, made themselves relevant. So, so it, it was a big process and an important process for, for the topic of migration. And on the controversies, I mean, you mentioned it in the beginning, so many, especially Western governments, fell over the, the compact because there was always the fear of losing sovereignty. If you sign off something that is, that is um, interstate, that it, was a lot of discussion what is the treaty what is the compact and and the um the us left the negotiations um already in 20 they didn't even get to the negotiations so uh, under trump um which probably some of the people i spoke with said we wouldn't have had a compact as it is if the if that administration would have been um part of that in germany huge debates and the, the poor Swiss co-facilitated the process, um, didn't adopt the compact to date. So we have a result of um, a lot of governments signing off on this, but some key governments, even like the Swiss, they need the GFMD and they need other processes because they cannot engage in that global compact. It was, it was a, 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 one of the weirdest things. So you have the Swiss ambassador to the, the permanent representative of the UN, Jürg Lauber, with his colleague from Mexico, were the two co-facilitators who, very, in a very personable and very intense way, led this highly political process, you know, in those five months. And by the time it came to adopt the, com the compact, the seat of Switzerland was empty in, in Marrakesh. Um, and so the actual, you know, the, 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 the government could not sign up um, to what the permanent representative had been negotiating, which is a pretty weird uh, situation. Uh, to be in. Um, and the other sort of uh, little story is that I don't think there are many other uh, UN-led processes that end up with a video game um, with a kind of a, a, a shooting down of the, all the, the Swiss and the Austrian 
sort of diplomats that have been involved um, in the process of being shot down for and being held responsible for um, for you know giving up on sovereignty um, for their country. So it was all very strange. Um, but now that we have a flavor of this um, animal that the global combat um, was, um, and you mentioned a little bit these different phases of the of, of the negotiations, and indeed we all had this experience of being able to behind the scene influence uh, influence the process where it was very overt in the first phase, and then you know something happened during those intense political negotiations where. You know the the door the door was closed. It was a political negotiation with states, but still things were going on in the background. So tell us now a bit more about the findings of the the role of particular first civil society in in these different phases of the process and how effective they were. Well, I I think I mean I, I spoke about this quite long consultation phase and um uh, and what what effectively happened is a lot of actors and more and more actors came in wrote papers, brought in ideas. Um, and what I heard also from governments and the co-facilitation team is um, they read it all, um, which is also a certain kind of dedication um, to, to such a process. Um, and then on the other side from civil society, I heard a lot of frustration because they felt no governments were in the room, they didn't hear us and we made all that, those submissions. But when we look at the first draft, the zero draft of the compact, um, that was a positive surprise for everyone. Most people were, we didn't believe that we would get something like this um, as something that is proposed to states to negotiate. And they felt their ideas reflected. And, and what I did in the book, and that will be too long to talk about, is with really tracing some of those ideas that were proposed and how they how they ended up in the in the zero draft and then um, in the in the final in the final document, but for me that speaks to how important processes, how you set up set up the process, how you give input and how it's being received and through which interlocutors. And I think the key leverage point at this stage were the were the co-facilitators, as was David as a co-facilitator during the during the New York Declaration. Um, and, and that really informed the process because that was a very high starting point where you could negotiate it uh, down and there were surely losses. Um, and then from that, what I, what I was trying to do is, is also develop some criteria of actually what made actors successful. And um, again, to me, after having been through that, I, they sound quite basic, but they are in my opinion, key if you want to be successful and influential in such, in such negotiations, which is um, the more clear and targeted your goals are, the, more, the, the clearer you know what you want and what you have to offer, the better it's received by both a co-facilitation team that is totally overwhelmed by individual governments. Um, so do you actually have a clear mandate and a clear clear objective that you go in, or is it just nice to be at the UN and, and do something and share and share something? Um, and they're, they're very good examples of, I don't know, the International Detention Coalition, who, who was going really strong on, um, on um, opposing the, the concept of, of detention during that process. Um, then the, the more actors worked in alliances and, and coalitions and brought forward joint statements or it was multi-stakeholder. Um, for example, we had the, the initiatives on child rights in the global compact governments, UN agencies, civil society, all coming together and putting forward joint statements, recommendations in the negotiation process are actually also 
joint uh, proposals for for the, for the text, and and when speaking on and that is what I try to do in the research. Not only with civil society themselves, how they perceived it, but I spoke with a number of governments, um, representatives from international organizations. I looked at, at at the text, and those were those coalitions that were most successful because it was it gave them credibility. Um, you, you somehow knew its balanced views, its, um, its concrete proposals, um, rather than a large amount of smaller groups who would all approach one person. That might be to be challenged on, on, on from the participation perspective, but on, in terms of effectiveness, um, uh, for sure. The, more, the less dogmatic actors were perceived, the, the, the more successful, the more you come in as an expert, coming from both civil society think tank grassroots level, um, the less, uh, the, the, the more credible you, you seemed rather than an, an activist speaking more from, from a government perspective. So there, there are a number of things that I think are very broad, be it you, private sector or civil society, trade unions, um, uh, to, to be learned from, from that process. And then it was very few who actually were able to influence the actual negotiations. Because for that, you needed the network, the knowledge of the system, knowing how to access um, certain people. Um, also, that sounds clear, but how do you build that connections if the, the processes have always been outside the UN system, if you didn't know how things were working, you only knew the GFMD process. So, so it's, it's much more the beginning, and we are five years in, and, and actors are much more experienced, they learn. Um, of building that if you compare it to the human rights space or the, the, the climate space where actors are moving for, for many, many years um, and, and knowing who, who does what and who to speak with on what matters. Let me ask you a follow-up question. First, uh, GFMD, again, for the people who are not, <laughs> uh, who are not uh, you know, uh, migration um, aficionados, uh, is the Global Forum for Migration and Development that in the absence of a state-led UN process on global migration before the Global Compact was um, a, a state, interstate, whatever you call it, it was, a, it was a, a basically a, a forum for member states and civil society to meet regularly and have a, a, an open-ended conversation on migration. It was the only space where states could have something that actually looked very much like a state-led negotiation, but in principle was not. And it's, in, and it's, a, it's a funny thing that happened, I can say this, as a that it, it, after the Global Compact, that process became not as relevant or you know yeah there's been a lot of soul searching of what happened then on these hybrid um processes that were in place uh, before but let me just ask you just to give us a flavors people because one uh, you know if you compare it something like cop right the whole world goes to cop and then there is two weeks where everything is happening in a big almost like in a big fanfare but here we're talking about as you said five months where all the doors literally closed like there was no more like official mechanism so those who you said were well connected and could do it what were the where were the mechanisms to continue to have you know a, a say um in in the process what did they look so like one very practically was through the co-facilitators who would open up spaces that they didn't have to open up they were not built in as david said in in the beginning in the sdg process it was built in very technically there were meetings that were happening during the the formal negotiations that would include civil society that didn't happen, so it was informal meetings. Again, not many governments really attended. 
And then it was only those who had direct connections with individual governments, negotiators who had also questions, who needed advice, who was like, I don't understand this concept that is in the text. What, what does it mean? I don't think my government would agree. Can you help us um, change, change that or put forward a, a proposal? But for that, you had to have the connections. And, and also it was very expensive being in New York during that, during that time. And a lot of smaller um, organizations who have actually a lot of expertise and knowledge to bring to such a process, they didn't have the resources. There were only very few funders who would support that process. And then you need to balance. Is it is my staff time and the money, the travel money worth uh, more worth if I send that person to New York to influence whatever UN negotiation? Or do I send a person to do a project directly with migrants and, and refugees or community building in Southeast Asia? Southeast Asia. So, so that reduced drastically the, the number of people who, who actually could do that. Okay. Let me actually, I, I want to ask you something that we didn't discuss, but it just came up in my head. Because it, it's interesting, you think about the processes that led to the compact. Of course, there is this official, the three phases that Rafael defined. The political negotiations led to a text in the summer of 2018 that was gathered in while while Austria and Hungary were saying, saying no way, or Hungary in particular, the co-facilitator said we have, you know, we have a text and this is the final text. And then something quite unique, what quite strange happened in this process that rather than then being endorsed during the General Assembly that is in September, which is what normally happens with um, with UN protocols, Morocco insisted and, and managed to obtain that this, this the compact would be approved or endorsed at a special summit that took place in December 2018 in Marrakesh. So the unusual thing that happened was that between July and December, there was a bit of an open, you know, of a moment when nothing was meant to happen because the text was final. It was just a matter of gathering again in Marrakesh. And that's where you know, things began to go downhill. And I'm, I'm actually just, I'm curious about this. I and mean, I'm wondering about, because then there was another version of civil society having a big influence. Those who did the, the, the video game, those are basically sort of far right groups that really grabbed, you know, this moment in the autumn and, and said, well, you know, behind closed doors, well, nobody, you know, but that was saying much, your governments are, are giving up sovereignty in New York and that you should put pressure. So famously Italy that in July said, totally behind this, we are endorsing it by, you know, when Salvini had, you know, heard rumors about it, say, our brothers, the Swiss are not signing this, we're not going to do this either. So what was it, have you thought about the role of, of civil society in, in this larger sense during that period? I mean, I have, I academically excluded yeah. it from that because I was like, <laughs> that, would be, that would be a different, that would be a different project. But um, I think it, it is some form of civil society and it's some form of, of movement building that happened um, uh, all over Europe, and especially the US was out, probably if the US would have still been in, they would have been in, in that part of the, the movement. Um, and for me, one of the, there was just a gap because there was no communication happening, neither from the UN properly nor from um, governments who were who were negotiating it of speaking openly about this is an opportunity this is something very important to us helping us to manage migration more safe and orderly and and whatever um, but rather it was kept very quiet out of exact the, the concern of them falling over um, over the compact and exactly that happened because they didn't communicate and in the, in the case of Germany that I can speak to is um, the, 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 the right-wing party 
brought it into the parliament and the other parties didn't really know and the parliamentarians didn't really know what the compact is and was, which led to a lot of confusion and no one being able to stand up to comments that were made. So for me, one of the key learnings is one is like when you agree to something that also fast. adopted yes. fast, um, because there's always political moment and, and, and we, we learn a lot that during crisis, you can also push certain policy making and you need to be prepared for that. Um, but also, and then a window closes. So, so how, and then it's the whole piece around communication and that, um, both for for the UN um, that wasn't wasn't equipped also because IOM was not in a leading role at the time I don't know if they would have been the best um, uh, actor to do that um, probably not but also the governments didn't and that is why it was very important that again the German perspective Chancellor Merkel back then showed up in Marrakesh and I remember she got standing ovations um, from from governments and civil society in the room of showing face at at the adoption of the thing whereas others were were not coming because of the because of the controversies her and shells got a lot of recognition yeah. for their role let's go back to your academic research for the second uh, um aspect uh, of your of your research and then we'll go to questions which is cities so and rightly you know in your book cities are treated in a separate chapter from uh, civil society and non-state actors um, and um, and it's something that is now close to your heart and my heart we've been working since uh, very very closely with cities cities played and mayors played a critical role um, I always get upset when cities get re referred to as civil society or non-state actors because of course they are a structure of the states um, so in what ways was their role different from what you told us about non-state actors so one, I think they are very distinct. I mean, they're they're local governments. They are part of the the multi-level governments. They have their constituency. They they are responsible to that constituency. So so that is also something that became very clear when the U.S. Um, left the process. A lot of U.S. government U.S. cities were able to be mobilized with the framing of well, the U.S. government is out, but cities are in um, in 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 such a political uh, controversial moment, which has been much more powerful than if three, five, ten civil society organizations from the U.S. would have been strong, which they also have have been in that in that process. Um, and and they were distinct in many ways also during the, the the negotiations, because initially when I started the project, I only wanted to write about non-state actors, because cities were not built in the in in the in in the process as like others they weren't part of really part of the um, consultations they organized separately to really show up at the stock stock taking um in a in in a in a way supported by a lot of allies who wanted to have cities at the at the un including the co-facilitators who really pushed that um and then the us leaving gave cities really a a lot of US cities, other cities coming in and be, we, we really want some things in the compact. Um, so they demanded first and foremost to be heard at the UN level, um, which was the key advocacy point. And the second was to be recognized as local authorities as distinct from other actors. And then there were a few content related questions, but I think for cities in comparison to civil society was their recognition. And what happened ever since is we have a mayor's migration council, we have a mayor's mechanism that's not only related to the GFMD, we have a lot of um, 
city leaders interested in also speaking about migration at the UN, also opposing their national governments, not, not actively, but also having a very different um, role and approach. The mayor of Milan, um, we, we both um, are working with, um, is, is speaking about global migration issues. Um, the, the mayor of Bristol um, here in the, in the UK. So, so, so there are other forms of leaders who came into that process. And the, the biggest achievement was the recognition in the UN system and the International Migration Review Forum. And that's probably also the bit forward looking piece that was held for the, the first review last year in May in New York. Um, mayors were the biggest stakeholder groups with their delegation who came to the UN with concrete asks with the commitments they would make to implementing the global compact. Um, and that really came from that movement that was built during the negotiations in 2018, um, building an organization who would lead on city diplomacy in 2019, um, and having achieved a lot in terms of narrative change, in terms of different perspective, in terms of us perceived as actors who need resources to be inclusive to all citizens. Um, and then I think one of the things that I'm I'm still tracing how it actually happened, and maybe Marta and, and also the real have, have ideas about that, is that I heard a lot of stories where mayors push strongly for the basic access to services, which is a principle that is established in the compact that was there from the from the beginning, but it was there was a moment in the negotiations when that was supposed to fall out because governments just said, well, we cannot give everyone basic access to services. I think COVID showed how important it is to give everyone, if you don't va vaccinate a certain group of the population that lives in your city, um, it's not good for, for everyone for a very selfish reason. Um, so, so there, the voices of mayors and, and local authorities was key to maintain that them as, as also officials saying, we need that principles and we want to implement that principle in our city. Um, so the voice during the negotiation was key and Mayor Reese um, was one of the first mayors to ever speak at the UN and the first to speak at such a negotiation with a very powerful voice. Great, so let's conclude with a look ahead at the future. Um, you already mentioned, uh, uh, and again, another, um, um, I can't think of any on English well tonight, um, acronym. Um, you mentioned IMRF, uh, that's the International Migration Review Forum, which is, and this is an interesting thing for all of us who work in development, you know how the SDGs have an annual um, moment at the high-level political forum every July. The most of the member states could agree on the global compact was a four-year process, and this, if David was still here, it would be it was the one that really he did not like, and if it was really not good enough that there was no proper monitoring mechanisms for implementation. So the first, we are five years in, 2023, so the first IMRF happened in July last year. Um, and so um, five years in, Rafaela, where are we in terms of where do you see this role that you explained that non-state actors and cities played? What does it mean for the implementation of the, for the Global Compact and its relevance? And where will we be in five years' time? So 10 years in. Ten years in. So I think we, we are not there where we could have been or where we could imagine to be. Um, but we also managed to have an international migration review forum. There would have also been a scenario where states wouldn't agree to hold such a forum because it's so politically controversial. Um, and 
structures are established, as I said in the beginning, there's a lot that is that is there. Um, it could be a bigger of a movement. It could be something that gets governments excited to send their reviews and their reports to the network and the midterm and, and showcasing what they have done. I think it's a very, um, I mean, before everyone arrived, Jibril uh, Martin and I spoke about the UK a bit. Um, also, other countries are not particularly excited about additional processes um, and 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 this topic in particular and reporting about it. Um, but it's creating moments where you come together around the issue at the UN. It's creating moments where all these actors engage with each other, not every four years, but very regularly through the network and different in different settings. Um, we have some financing mechanism in, in place. And I think the, the really biggest movement and push was came from, from the cities and what, what emerged from that and how they would organize and being very pragmatic about committing to the compact and implementing it and using that framing. Um, if I think of the next five years, I think it's, the, the community will do a, do a good job if we have a next IMRF review forum um, in 2026 that is bringing a larger constituency of people that is talking about the future and 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 actually the very positively about migration in a way what migration can can do um and if we sort out the the different forum processes that are very confusing at the moment and it's, it's too much um on what you do on migration issues on the global and the and the regional level um so it's not overly like wow, but but there is a there, there there is there is something there that we can work with. Okay, so a balanced assessment, and on that I think Jibril, that's your time to come in uh, to give us some your views on this and some of your uh, perspective again as an insider that also has experience of working with the private sector, which we always forget, but is a key represent you know is is a key non-state actor, Jibril. Um, is partner at JK Partners and uh, works with a number of particular African governments and African businesses and had, you know, is one of those actors with me in the corridor, <laughs> negotiated some access during the process uh, and currently visiting Professor Prasad at the LSE. So where do you think we're going with this global compact? Well, with all of the agreements, it's about to what extent one implements it. But I think, um, Rafaela, you mentioned even in the process, we had common language. And in your book, you've documented, I think, appropriately, the role of GFMD. All of this was almost cumulative. The fact that certain issues were not controversial was because there was trust over years of non-state actors, private sectors. Even cities were first brought in through the GFMD mechanism. And they are recognized, so they were having this dialogue. So many issues were had become less controversial. The ones that have become controversial, they'd even then been introduced. I remember at the Palais de Nation very early on, the co-facilitator from Switzerland, we had a private meeting and I raised the issue of funding. And he said to me, if you want crisis in this negotiation, talk about money that money should not, we must not talk about money. Of course, I knew he was wrong. So the first thing I did, I don't usually publish a paper, but I published a paper with IOM to talk about money so that you, bring, you break the taboo, as it were, on the controversial things so that people are familiar with it. 
now in terms of the future, that's a very interesting point because the thinking at the time of how to deal with the financing of the compact, if we have it, to actually what we have is different. For me, I didn't discover that the financing part would be in the form of a trust fund until much, much later. Because I was in, I attended all of the negotiations in New York except the first one. And I was shocked. I, I kind of missed the ball because the trust mechanism used is totally inappropriate in my view for broader funding of the compact because it's a UN structure. It is mainly UN. So all of it is UN and governments and the partners. And if you now look at it, virtually there is no independent partner involved because it's the nature of the structure. What it should have been is an open format. So all of the other parts of the sort of implementation part, I think it's that. One final observation generally, both in this one, because we all live through it, we walk through it, but these global agreements and the compacts do have limitations. After two years of negotiation, so much work, when you agree it, it's such a euphoric moment. You think you've actually got something. Actually, you've got nothing. When you've got an agreement signed, you've got nothing. That's the beginning to try to get something. And now we've seen, despite some of the, the compact was able to introduce what's like pathways for legal pathways and stuff like that. And here in the UK, we are seeing the, the actual opposite of that. And the UK is a signatory. It's got all of that language of regular pathways. And right now in our parliament, we're running through a bill called Illegal Immigration Act. So that's where we are. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jibril. I knew you would um, give us um, some measured uh, and insightful views. Uh, let me take some questions from people here in the room. And in the meantime, I forgot to mention if those online want to put questions, not in the chat, but in the Q&A, right? And then I'll read them uh, through the iPad here if they come through. But is somebody in the room uh, who wants to come in first, please uh, state who you are. Wait for the mic as otherwise they can't hear. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much. My name is Milica Petrovic. I'm the program director of um, the European Program for Integration and Migration. Uh, so I have a, a question to trigger uh, some some thoughts, and that is, it was hinted at a little bit uh, also by by Jibril. Uh, you have the statement, but then what comes next? It's not legally binding. Um, so how do you? And you obviously have the implementation process. But how do you see that in terms of impact and the potential for real change? Um, and, and I guess also the, com the, the, the complexity of the fact that it's not legally binding, because I remember I was at the was working for the EU at the time at political level and actually the EU being an observer in this process was actually using the fact that it's not legally binding to assuage first Hungary, then Belgium, also living in Belgium when the government fell. So um, they were actually using that to say, hush, hush, it's all fine. Like this, these are discussions happening at Neville. It's not gonna be legally binding. It's all fine. It's gonna be a nice pretext. Um, but then at the same time, there is this massive process and there is the, you know, the follow-up and the engagement of so many actors. So how do you see that balance? Let's take maybe another and then we'll come back. So one is legally binding and going back to this point about the, the failures of negotiations and the control 
misunderstandings. Any more questions in the room? Pilar, no, Pilar, introduce yourself, thank you. Um, many thanks for the presentation. This is really interesting. I'm Pilar Domingo. I'm a senior research fellow in the Politics and Governance Group. I wanted to ask a question about the negotiations from the mayor's perspective and um, how they navigated political loyalties with regard to their own objectives, their country's objectives, and then some of the contradictions that they will have felt about what they wanted. Thank you. Any more questions? There's nothing online. Oh, Caterina, you want one. And then go ahead, and then another one, and then we'll go back to Raffaella. Go ahead. Hi, thanks very much for the presentation. Uh, I'm Caterina Mazzilli and I work here at ODI in uh, equity and social policy. Um, my question is very simple. So you mentioned that um, in, there were quite only a few influential actors from the civil society. So I was wondering if you can give um, some more specific um, examples on who they were and also which proposals that they made were then in the end included in the compact. <laughs> Hi there, my name is Andrew Connolly. I'm a journalist and I've, I've covered a few borders and, and migration stories. And it's really just a question about um, about border violence and, and the protection of, of migrants' lives. There is a small uh, provision in there in, in, in the pact and, and, um, and how you review uh, the status of that. Um, I said this pact was... Um, formed in Morocco. Morocco has sort of forced migrants to storm uh, uh, the Spanish border because of an obscure uh, disagreement with, uh, with, 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 uh, with, with Spain and, and the, there is an instrumentalization of migration from Belarus, the EU, several EU member states, uh, you know, complicit in the deaths of migrants uh, there were 300 deaths i think in the last four days so yeah just a, a question about how you know what does it really mean uh, uh, to a migrant trying to get from a to b uh, uh, maybe not a refugee someone who wants a sort of working opportunity but feels forced to go through that kind of irregular process uh, and encounter violence on the way Thank you. We have we have very uh, substantive questions. This this last one you can give the more diplomatic answer. No, I'm joking. Can we, uh, uh, I'll come back to you, Rafael, and then we can go back to yeah. and people from online. People, uh, please put questions. Through. I'm, I'm going to start with with yours because I I think you're hinting at one very important aspect of the of the compact. If you talk about UN and language, and as you said, it's like you haven't achieved anything in terms of helping one migrant. Um, one person on the move um, and especially when it comes to to borders and and uh, protection we saw some stepping back of governments behind agreements that have been out there before um, so we don't have the wording on non refoulement in the in the um, global compact we have a description around that it was in there in the beginning Civil society found, fought really hard for it. Also, UN human rights agencies found really hard, fought really hard for it because they said, well, that's something, we, that, that, that's a basis we are working on, right? Um, so in 2018, um, governments didn't agree to the name principle at that point that described it. Um, so so there, there is also sentiment in the, in the compact of the time that it doesn't speak to, um, we have to protect people who, arrive at, at borders and and there that, that's that's something else we have to look at in, in the compact of a, a time 
document where we stand from, believe we are in a much worse state of how governments view um, those things right now and how they handle it, um, also sitting here in the UK, but also in, in, in terms of many, many other governments. And then um, it's probably also relating a bit to what you're asking is like this, these very high level um, agreements, um, compact, non-legally binding, but there is processes to, to talk and what's the logic model to actually help people on the move directly. And, um, and, and you can argue either way, right? And my, I would always ask, what if we don't have it? What if we don't have the painful and long meetings um, every few years or once a year where governments come read their statement with the long process that sits behind it of how you come to prepare such a statement um, with all the input that comes from, from the government. If that disappears from the agenda, if you, if you don't have moments also of being challenged by civil society or other actors or moments where you feed in ideas, um, moments where you collect practices that are happening all over the world. And, and speaking also a bit to, um, to, to the work that, that cities and mayors are doing is they at the last forum in, in, in New York last year, they came in with, um, I think they framed it around commitments we are making as cities to implement the global compact, which was a lot of stories around how they would, apart from what their national government would do or fund, um, invest in protecting migrants, in investing in skills, in investing in their communities, based on some of the principles that have been laid out there. Probably they would do it anyhow, but that builds kind of a movement in the framing. That's the, the positive note. And the other note is, it's a lot of sitting and talking and we haven't helped anyone. And, and that is just the reality. <laughs> probably also that what, where you where you where you sit and on which end of the the migration system you you work um i think and i had one question and, and i know I'm, i have to move on to the other question but i had um one one question in research which is kind of highly hypothetical is what if we didn't include all those non-governmental actors in the process and i asked that i think i asked asked it to you as well and, and to Mata, i'm not sure um, and I got very diverse answers, but if you if you boil it down and if you think the other way around, if if they if they may were able to make some changes, if they were able to propose things, um, then they had somewhat of an influence, and then you need to you need to look at it more closely. But if it was purely intergovernmental, just states for four or five months speaking about migration. Um, driven by a lot of western governments you would have either no document or you would have a document that is very much talking about borders in a very different way than um than probably many of us here in the room would um would want that and that would also be guiding governments um and then the legally binding argument was the same in germany and so many other countries which i think it was a wrong not well thought through argument at the time of what does soft law, what does do compacts and things that are developed in such a way actually mean to our governments. And um, they mean they guide us, they, they mean we don't have to do everything, but they guide policies that we are developing, we are looking into that document, if we are thinking about skills or participation, I mean, there's so much in, in there from, from all angles of the migration processes, there are ideas in there. 
Um, so, so, so that was a kind of a, a failure in, 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 in many ways. And, um, and then you have to report and then you can still cherry pick. And that's the, also one of the criticisms, but you can cherry pick as Belgian government, whether you focus on the skills element or if you more want to focus on there is something in on return, um, you can do it because there is no, not with the SDGs where you have concrete indicators, probably we'll get there, I don't think so. Um, and then on um, who were the people from, from civil society, I think very strong was, and, and everyone who's listening or re-watching that is not that, um, that there were a lot and, um, uh, and a lot of great and important actors. I think very key was the Civil Society Action Committee, which coalition again came forward with something that was called the uh, 10 Acts on the Global Compact with concrete demands that they pulled together and governments I spoke with said, well, everybody read the 10 acts because that was so well put together. We knew it's a broad coalition. Um, organizations that were very, as I said, very targeted, international detention coalition, clear goal. Um, a lot of faith-based organizations um, who, who came with um, their, their perspectives, regional coalitions, um, and I think what was sticking most with governments were also very new actors, very grassroots level, who came in with a completely different and new voice, something that stuck. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I heard a lot like those civil society people who would speak actually like governments. It's this, you, you, you constantly listen to the same people and you cannot actually listen anymore. But when someone comes in and has something new to say with a different perspective, coming from a, telling a story in a UN context, that was actually very, very powerful. Um, and from the mayors, um, for at the time, they were coordinating in a very agile and small manner. I don't know, WhatsApp groups and very, very, very um, small coalition of of cities who would who had to be very fast because it was a very short um, process now we have the, the the structures in place to prepare properly for something um something like that and i think my understanding is but people might also have an opinion that that they never came in as we are except the u.s cities which is a different situation came in as we are opposing the government but we are a level of government that is very much working with migrants and the communities in our cities and we have something to share and um, there's been a lot written um, also by colleagues of mine by Janina Stirner and others on the they took on the role as very pragmatic actors which was refreshing to hear was a different voice and um, they they prepared that also quite well and they put forward quite pragmatic statements about these are the realities and we need frameworks that fit our realities and right now they don't. Great, it is uh, two minutes past seven, I think we're gonna have a drink. Um, so let me just uh, conclude with two very quick thoughts. Um, first of all, thank you all for coming. Um, I was gonna say something in UK and Jibril mentioned how, you know, five years on we have, you know, the legal immigration bill be discussed in parliament. And so it would be, tempting to say, would the UK you know, be in the same position as it was then? But the other interesting thing about the UK is was the delegation from the UK that led the negotiations was led by then Diffit. 
uh, with the FCDO supporting, the FCO at the time supporting. And so I just thought about whether today they would be different by virtue of not having a department like DFID taking the lead um, on, on this compact. And then the second thought um, is that there is, and this is a bit more, you know, a bit more positive that yes, the, the, the compact is very much a UN document and UN process and has gone back into being managed as a UN implementation mechanism. A community was created around this. And actually those of us that worked on development and migration at the time, we were not a big community. So we did uh, manage to get text and, you know, and get a conversation going about both development, sustainable development as a, you know, something goes under in hand with the reality of, of um, human mobility, but then much more concrete examples and focus on labor migration and skills, which particularly colleagues at CGD, Michael Clements and others should be sort of uh, recognized for. Well, today, actually last week, WDR 2023 is published from the World Bank, which actually for the first time, you know, breaks, you know, does a really good job at walking that thin line of recognizing the definitions of migrants and refugees, but actually talking about the premises of immobility across poverty and conflict and actually breaks down this idea that we are either talking about force, people being forced to move or people voluntarily, which actually goes to your point that although the global compact was set up as a separate process by design, you know, to not be dealing with issues of protection of refugees, but only with voluntary labor migration effectively, what fell through the crack, of course, is everybody who's forced to move in, in very difficult circumstances. And so, you know, although obviously WDR is not the same as a global agreement, um, but is it, I don't think probably, I would far as saying, I don't think we'll have the WDR we just had without the global compact as a process where some of these um, ideas were discussed and put to the table. So that's at least uh, some positive note to end with. So thank you very much, um, Rafaela, for your research, your work, your education, and everything you've done since to keep this community alive and make sure that the work of the cities and of the non-state actors and others continues to deliver. So thank you all for coming. Let's have a glass of wine. Um, and thank you for the